As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Radio. Sacred Music in Today's Society. An interview with Ronan Riley. So I'm joined today by Ronan Riley. How are you going? Not too bad, thank you. How are you? That's good. just wanted to ask you, um, obviously you've got quite a musical background. Um, it kind of goes without saying. But I wanted to speak to you specifically about the role of sacred music in the liturgy. Um, just a little bit about, obviously there's a, there's a strong tradition there. And I guess I wanted to get from you, you know, what is that musical tradition that we have in the liturgy? And what is the musical tradition, I guess, that we have today in, in continuity with that? Yeah, for sure. I think the basic understanding must predate Christianity Um, and in fact I suppose predates Judaism in a sense as well. If we actually go back the original uh, music in the scriptures is Miriam on the bank of the Red Sea after they've fled Egypt Um, and it it says in there that she, she took out a tambourine and started singing. So you don't do that if there isn't already music but it's the first instance of it being recorded. So I think the idea that a human response in music as a response to something that is joyful, something that is uh, a petition, something that's thanksgiving, something that's uh, even contritionary, it's something inherent in the musical, sorry, in the human uh, Mm. setup to have a musical response towards God. So that's the first kind of primary little principle, I think, to, to come back to. But I think it's important also to understand that the chant tradition of the Catholic Church takes its full roots in both the Greco-Roman tradition as well as in the Jewish tradition. And there are still melodies that we sing today that we know almost certainty go back to the temple. So, for example, we know that Psalm 113 uh, to 118, the, the Thanksgiving Psalms of the Jews, that these psalms were sung to what's known now as the tonus peregrinus, so the wandering tone. And Psalm 113, which would have been prayed by our Lord, it's the only time that he's singing in the gospel, mm. is at the end of the, the Last Supper. So they were the psalms prayed at the end of the Last Supper. And that melody is still used today in the church, but Psalm 113 talks about the provision of daily bread and being led from one place of exile to a place of belonging again, which is, in essence, what the Our Father is also about, hence why that melody is now employed with the Our Father. Wow. So the old melody for the psalm, and that's straight away employed into the Our Father in the early church, Pater Noster qui es in chedis, sed liberanos amalo. So you see that there's this continuity of thought, continuity of, of theology, continuity of discussion, dialogue. All these aspects are all kept there. But the, the primary uh, inheritance from the temple comes specifically from the Psalms. And it's this idea that it's a dialogue, it's a discussion, either between one side of a group of people and the other side, or between a cantor and everyone, or between the priest and everyone. So the most fundamental music that we sing in the liturgy today, the Levitical music, just comes from the temple. The Lord be with you. Straight out of the temple. Mm. Um, in fact, in the, in the old Dominican liturgy, 
Dominus Vobiscum. It goes back and forth on a semitone, and we know that the Jews would have cantillated back and forth on a semitone. So if you take the idea that the Psalms is the basis of liturgical prayer, and the word psalm comes from the Greek psalmos, which means to string a harp, it's inherent in the Judeo-Christian mindset, and not as much anymore in the West, but certainly still in the East, and certainly still in the Jewish mindset, that a psalm is sung. And if the psalms are taken as the bedrock and the center and the essence of liturgical prayer, then you sing it. Yeah. So I think if you look at the last century of documents of the church and magisterial teachings on sacred music, it's, well, with anything in the church's history, when there's an issue, the church talks about it. So 325, Nicaea, you know, who, who and what is Christ? Because everyone is arguing about it. Uh, Pius X writes his document in 1903 because music at that time post-revolution, post-reformation, had a fallout. Uh, monasteries are destroyed, monks are killed, books are lost, burnt, whatever. So you have a, a basically a, a hundred years where you have a string of documents from Pius X up until Benedict Sixteenth, where they are trying to refocus the idea of singing in the chant tradition, which essentially goes back to Miriam on the bank with the tambourine. So it's, it's one continuous thing that's just gotten deeper, really. It's a human experience, which is it's grown in depth. Yeah, I remember now. Correct me if I if I'm wrong, and it's going to be really embarrassing if I'm wrong. But I have this <laughs> recollection of seeing, I think it was in in one of the Prima Luce CDs. I think it's um, is it I heard the voice of Jesus say yep. that song there. Now, did you write? You wrote two extra verses. Yeah, so, yeah is that yeah, correct? Yeah. Yep. Now, obviously, what that indicates is that is that sacred music isn't something that is simply confined to history books, and For that we sure. go back and look at history yeah. books. It's something that's still happening today. Yep. yep. Do you mind telling me about that, about your your involvement with that, and I guess the role of the role of the church and the role of um, of the faithful with continuing that development of tradition that you've said goes right back to the Jews themselves. Yeah. Well, I think um, Saint Augustine is usually a good reference point for things. I mean, in terms of the entirety of sacred music, as to the question, why do we sing? He has the simple answer: singing is for him who loves. And he says that when we sing in the church, we taken into the person of Christ through baptism and inspired by the Holy Spirit, we sing as a response of him who loves in the person of Christ to worship the Father. So when you take St. Augustine on why to sing, you can also take him on, you know, why is this a living tradition? And he says that it's a beauty that is ever ancient and ever new. Now, it's ancient in its principle but it's continuously renewed in its application and in its, in its inspiration with the creativity of each and every generation. And I think when it becomes stagnant, there's an issue. So it's not a matter of originality. It's not a matter of coming up with a, a new way to use a wheel. It's a matter of learning what is there and has been passed down continuously. And even in a certain sense, as I, as I touched upon, as a human experience, it, it is even extra Judeo-Christian. This goes across the board with pretty much any religious or spiritual group or experience. There is something to do with chanting. Yeah. It's just a, a human response to deity of whatever form. So I think if, if that's true, it's true now as it was then. So... The Holy Fathers from Pius X through to B16 have given great examples 
mm. of how to compose, of how to, as John Paul II said, make sure there isn't an ugliness or a distastefulness or something that's unworthy of the sacred action that's taking place. So I think the, the question is not, should there be newness in liturgical music? It's rather, how should it be? Mm. So that's not to say, as Benedict said, we can't say that every song is equal in the liturgy. Mm. You have, even within the liturgy itself, you have sacred music, which is the Gregorian chant primarily, but then you also have polyphony. But then outside of the liturgy, you also have devotional music. Mm. So there's, there's a gradation inherent in it, but then there's also certain litmus tests set up to mm. work out if something has a worthiness which is liturgical or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So. What if, if there's anyone out there who, who would like to, I guess, learn more about this, learn about um, yeah, what you've been speaking about there. I mean, you've mentioned, um, you know, that long list of popes there over about a century or so. What kind of resources would you recommend for, for maybe a, a young uh, musician or singer who'd be interested in trying to learn about the tradition of sacred music in the church and also being part of that, you know, that development that you're speaking about yeah, there? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, being a, a member of the board for the Australian Sacred Music Association, on our website, sacredmusic.org.au, we have a section dedicated to resources. And on there, there's a, a tab, Magisterial Documents, so we have all the primary musical documents from Pius X through to Benedict XVI. And even, even a shallow reading of all of those documents will quickly point you to two facts. One, as Catholics, we should sing. It's not an option. It's not the icing on the cake. It's the flour. It's the milk. It's the eggs. Um, and as Vatican II says in Sacrosanctum Concilium, the art of music in the church is an, of inestimable value. And then it goes on to make the audacious claim, it's greater even than any other art. Wow. So it's, you know, and as a musician, of course, people go, oh, you're biased. But, well, I didn't write that document <laughs> yeah. and I didn't reiterate it a thousand times. So you kind of think, well, what is it that makes that have a preeminent importance in the church? Uh, more important than architecture, more important than vestments and vesture and furnishings and sculptures and paintings and, and all these other beautiful art forms. And I think the preeminence comes from something which is pre-Christian and as we touched upon already, but the idea that music is the universal language of emotion. And my favourite summation of sacred music would have to be Benedict's quote, and he calls sacred music sober inebriation. It's a sobriety, first and foremost, found in the intellectualization, the understanding, the grasping of a text. But then because we're human, it necessitates an emotional response. But it has to come secondarily to what you've intellectualized with. So Good Friday, you read, my people, what have I done to you? In what way have I offended you? Answer me. You have to intellectualize with that. And if it doesn't spark an emotional response mm. of sorrow and contrition and all the rest of it, there's, some, there's something wrong. Yeah. But... If you just take an emotional response first and foremost, purely by the musical point of view, because music is emotive without words, then you can be led anywhere. Mm, mm. So it's important that it's sober inebriation, but sobriety precedes the inebriation. Mm, mm. Mm. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Ronan. No and worries. that gives us, I guess, a good uh, 
good kickoff for anyone who, who yeah, who wants to get more into this and, and yep. to check out the uh, Australian, was it again, sorry? Sacred Australian, Music Association. Australian yeah. Sacred Music Association. So. Yeah, and hop on Facebook. We always put updates on there. And, yeah. um, you know, if parishes or communities or anyone's interested in learning, we're always happy to try and tweak our resources to help them in their particular need. Awesome. Well, thank you much, so much again, Ronan. And uh, thank you for your work. Thank you. God bless. God bless. That was Ronan Riley with Sacred Music in Today's Society. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit radio.org.au.